0: Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show! Today's guest is Nicole Cruz. Nicole is a registered dietitian nutritionist, mom of three, and wife who takes an intuitive eating and non-diet approach to food. Her online practice is devoted to helping individuals and families reclaim their joy and find food freedom through one-on-one nutrition counseling and group programs. Whether you're parenting your child or reparenting yourself, Nicole is devoted to helping you foster a healthy relationship with food. In this episode, Nicole is absolutely fabulous and provides so much insight that I know you are going to love. Even if you aren't raising a family, this conversation might actually help you gain insight into your own childhood experiences. I know you are going to really love this episode of the show. Hi, Nicole. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you. Ah, I'm so glad you're doing well. Welcome to the show. I'm really excited to chat with you today. How are things going over there in California right now?
1: It's good. It's actually kind of crazy. I work in my daughter's kindergarten class. She's my youngest. I have three kids. Every other Wednesday, my husband and I trade off volunteering and we were walking out today and we like looked over at the mountains and they're covered in so much snow just like right around the corner from us. We've been getting torrential downpours here, which is not super normal, but there's so much snow. It's beautiful. And we're not used to that in Southern California. So it's fun.
0: (laughs) I love that. That's so funny because I was just there a few weeks ago and I don't spend a lot of time in Southern California. And I saw the snow-capped mountains and it really threw me for a loop. And I was like, this is beautiful. I have palm trees and snow-capped mountains right in front of me. I could not get over how breathtaking that area is. It's beautiful. That's why people don't leave California, even though they hate so many other things about it. But (laughs) every time I go to California, I feel like walking outdoors relaxes my entire body. Like there is literal smell in the air when I walk outside and inhale the fresh air. It just makes me so relaxed. I'm like, there's something about California that is amazing. Will I ever move there? Highly unlikely, but I always (laughs) dream of it. (laughs) It is a lovely
1: place in a lot of ways. So,
0: Yeah. Well, that sounds so nice. So things are going well. Today, I really wanted to dive in with you on a bit about your story and then also learn about sort of how to raise intuitive eaters and kind of go a little deeper into the family nutrition side of things that you do. But to kind of set the set the story or set the scene, I guess, I'd love to hear about your background. I know you have lived experience with an eating disorder. So could you please share a little bit about that with the listeners?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Try to give you the cliffs notes version. Yeah. So I was raised in a family where food was pretty normal in terms of like, Us kids were just, I don't know, allowed to eat whatever. And my mom made regular home cooked meals and we ate all sorts of food. And I just didn't feel like food was much of a thing, except my lovely mother, who I do have a great relationship with still to this day and adore, was just part of our culture. And so she was always dieting, like always dieting. And I just watched her measure her. Body parts and records them in her log, and go to Weight Watchers and count points, and try cabbage soup and like all the things under the sun that are so typical that we don't need to go into. But do all of those things, and so I would say I was raised in a home that, like, you would think you know I could just have a healthy relationship with food. Because food was never restricted or anything, but I really watched these patterns. And so when I was a teenager and my body started changing, and I wasn't crazy about it, I kind of knew what to do. <laughs> you know, like this is what wow. women do, and. It's interesting now as I reflect on that because I'm like, it was actually just like a, it was quite conscious. Like I just knew this is what I'll do one day. Like this is what women are supposed to do. Like I really just knew that it was part of me. I just believed that this is what women or at least women in my family do. I really knew that. So when my body started to change and I was trying to adjust my food and all of those things and, you know, in late high school and into college, I went into lots of different patterns of disordered behaviors with food and ended up leaving college to get support. And from there, I just, you know, went into my recovery world and over time of trying to figure out like, what do I want to do now? And everything shifted for me. I decided that I wanted to go back to be a dietitian and really help people the way that my dietitian and therapist had helped me. And so that's how I went back to school for dietetics and ended up going through the whole process and coming out knowing that I really wanted to treat you know, clients that were struggling with their own disordered eating and worked in treatment centers and opened my own private practice 12, 13 years ago now. And Always worked with clients who were struggling with whether it was, you know, just dieting and trying to get away from that or diagnosed eating disorders. I've always done that. And then when I had my own kids, I have three kids now that are 10, seven, almost eight next week, but 10, seven, and five. I always had done a little bit of family feeding. Even right out of school, I ran some programs at this clinic, I was working just some different things. But once having my own kids, I think being surrounded by other parents started to dive more into the family feeding aspects of it. And what really hit me was when I would be at, say, like a preschool event with one of my kids, and I could just hear the talk that parents were using related to their kids and food, like, oh, my kids cut off after two pieces of pizza, or, you know, the comments about candy and sweets. And, all of these things, and I was just noticing how so much of that talk paralleled the things that I was seeing in my office with my teen and adult clients that were struggling with eating disorders. And so, I really wanted to dive into this to do what I consider to be somewhat prevention, you know. And I know we can't entirely prevent eating disorders, and we live in a culture that's geared towards it, but to really help. Give parents a different message and to teach them that there could be a different way to talk about food and bodies in their home and a different way to handle it. So, you know, I get parents coming in that do have concerns about their child's behaviors with food and other ones that just really really don't want to pass on their own stuff and really want to raise their kids to have a healthy relationship with food, even if maybe they're not seeing behaviors yet. So that was really long. You asked for a short version <laughs> of my story, but that's where I'm at today.
0: <laughs> I love it. Oh my gosh. There are so many avenues we could go down and it was so interesting. So thank you for sharing all of that. I think something that's really striking to me is just kind of the full circle moment of your experience. Cause you know you grew up in a really loving home where food was readily available and i'm sure your mom was intentionally doing her best to raise you with an environment of like food abundance and joy around food but you still were picking things up and i think that's the fear that a lot of the listeners have who have kiddos is how do i raise intuitive eaters if eating is not intuitive for myself And I'm really curious to know, you know, I wasn't planning on asking you this question so soon, but I would love to dive into it because it seems natural. Like, what would you suggest people do who are struggling with food, but want to make sure their kids are not picking up those habits?
1: Yeah, I think it's multifaceted. So this work can coexist, right? We could do it in tandem, but it's essentially learning different strategies and language and practical things that you can really do when it comes to serving your child food and how you're providing food to them, how you're talking about food in your home, right? Those sorts of things. And then there's exactly what we talked about, which is kids absorb everything. So it's also what you're modeling. And I say it's in tandem because I think it's really important to learn the strategies. Like, I have a group program for parents and people come into it and I'm like, I give you PDFs on like language do's and don'ts, right? Like say this, not that. Like here are some actual scripts. Here are mealtime guidelines. Like these are things that you do. These are things you don't do, right? Like you need to have those strategies for the things you're doing and you're not doing, right? I have so many tools and stuff for the way we can provide food for our kids and talk about it and all these things. And we have to do the work on ourselves. And that's what I tell parents all the time, that it has to be both. And I think the beauty of it, though, is that can feel really overwhelming. But I find that it happens quite naturally. Like Even parents come into my program or doing work with me, and they don't even necessarily know that they need to do the work for themselves or they don't want to start there. It just starts to happen too, because they're like, okay, well, I need to provide food for my child in this way. So now maybe I'm sitting at snacks because I want to support them. And so I'm sitting down to have snacks with them. And I'm really recognizing, oh, I don't feed myself regularly or, oh, I don't serve my child enough of X food because that makes me anxious. And so it often happens in kind of a natural and evolving process. But I think it's twofold is that we want the information, we want the skills And we have to be willing to look at ourselves as well.
0: Mm -hmm. I like how you break it down into those like two little categories. And it's just fascinating how people can kind of work on themselves while fostering these positive relationships with food, you know, in the moment. I hear it all the time. Like, well, I actually eat more regularly now because I'm making sure my kids are eating more regularly. I see that with people who like adopt animals and pets too. They're like, oh, like now that I have a cat and I'm feeding her, I just make a point to feed myself whenever I feed her. (laughs) It's so cool.
1: It is. And I think as, you know, clinicians too, we can utilize some of that. It's like, okay, well, when you feed your cat, how can you make sure you're thinking about yourself as well? Right. Or, oh, it's great. Cause now like, you know, I have a dog and so I take them for a gentle walk. Cause we have to stop at every tree and we have to do this. And it's like, oh, that helps me connect with nature, but not mm-hmm. force the exercise or whatever, you know? And so I think we could always utilize those things a bit too.
0: Yeah, our kids and our pets are truly teachers in that way, which is so nice. And I definitely want to dive into those tools. But before I do, I'd love to know when you were raising your kids, what was that like for you? And in general, what was it like to raise intuitive eaters? And what did you find to be important in that process?
1: Yeah, it's been somewhat of an evolution. And I think it always will be. It still is and it always will be but I had first, you know, heard of and read about Ellen Satter. I don't even think it was during school. I, maybe it was mentioned when I was going through my nutrition program, but I think it was after when I was working in an environment and doing some family feeding classes and things. And I had heard about Ellen Satter in the division of responsibility, which she's like the guru for all of us that, you know, come into child feeding. And Some people would say maybe it's a little outdated and maybe things have evolved, and that's fine. But I still think that it has to inform some of the work that we do, which is really separating these responsibilities of parents and children, that parents are in charge of the what, when, and where kids eat, and kids get to decide how much and if they want to eat. So we're really supporting them and listening to their body, but then giving them the freedom to actually do that, which we can talk about more if you want to dive into that. But I just wanted to say that. So I had come across her work. And and I knew about it and I had read all of her books and I had taught family classes and all of these things, right? I'm a registered dietitian. I had so much information on nutrition. I'd had an eating disorder myself. I've been treating eating disorder clients for years at this point, been in recovery myself for years and felt like I had a really solid foundation in my recovery process. And then I had kids and a few things happened. One was with my first breastfeeding was really challenging for me. And then my child seemed to be really reactive in terms of keeping, you know, breast milk and then food down. And I was questioning if he had allergies and there were just so many things. And so I noticed that I was feeling anxious about food again. And like all of that was coming up and trying to feed him. And so I think that partially started our path towards some anxiety around food and trying to kind of monitor what I was eating to see if it was upsetting him and and different stuff like that. So that started to play a role. And then we got it to a point where I felt like, okay, things are a little more solid in that regard. And then I realized there was this like really, I guess just poignant moment where I was, at a barbecue with my husband and my husband's family and my one son at the time, my oldest, and he was like one something, maybe 18 months or something. And one of the aunts was handing out all of these popsicles, just your standard sugar, who knows what was in it. You know, people would say like chemicals, dyes, whatever, popsicle, not one of these like healthy, organic, whatever popsicles, right? Quote unquote, you know what I'm saying? But so, and. I felt so anxious about it. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I looked at my husband. I'm like, why? He's one. He doesn't need that. Why is she giving him popsicles? He's over there playing. And she's like, come get a popsicle. Come get a popsicle. and making it a thing. And I'm like, he was fine. Why does he need a popsicle? And he was like, chill out. Like, He was like, (laughs) it's a popsicle. The cousins are all eating them because she wants to give him a popsicle. And that's really fun for her. And I was like, oh, (laughs) like here I am, right? Feeling like I'm at peace with sugar and sweets. Like I'm at peace with my own relationship with food. And I'm suddenly feeling really anxious about what my kid is eating. And so what came through for me was really recognizing that throughout my own journey, I had really learned to reconnect to my body cues and to trust myself and to trust that there really weren't these like good and bad foods that things could be neutral and that I could see in myself that I could eat all sorts of foods and have some balance with it. But I think that because of the culture that we live in, that is still so much about like if you give your kids sweets too soon, then they're going to develop a taste for sweets. And then they're going to not want any vegetables. And then if you do this right and this wrong, and there was so much pressure around being a parent and doing everything right. I was also absorbing that around food. And I was putting that on my child too. Like I can trust myself, but I don't know if I could trust him yet because what if I'm going to ruin things and what if I'm going to mess it up and, did it it and do all these things wrong? And so like, I think my mom anxiety as a parent was coming out in the food again for him. And so I want to share that in one way too, because here I am a dietitian with all of this knowledge, with feeling really stable in my recovery and still struggling with that. And so- For any parents who find that they're struggling with their own relationship with food, they're struggling with feeding their child or having some anxiety around it, it's so incredibly normal. It's just built into our culture to make you feel that way. And so there's no shame in that. Like, it's just normal, sadly. And what we have to do is actually step outside of the box and feel like we're doing something different from the rest of the culture. And that's even what I hear from parents in my program. They'll come to a group or something and they'll say like, I feel like I'm actually kind of on an island. Like we were at this party and I just let my kid have their lemonade with their lunch. And the other parents like, you have to wait till you eat something, but then you can have your lemonade. You have to do do, that. They're like, and I'm just like give my kid their lemonade or you know, whatever the thing might be. They're like, it feels uncomfortable to do it different because the rest of our culture does it in a more restrictive, you have to earn it all of that way. And so if you're caught up in that, it makes a lot of sense. And it takes some work and some courage, honestly, to step
0: out of it. Wow. I am so grateful you shared that story because I don't have kids right now. And I could imagine how easy it is to, it's like, we're warriors. We're both lived experience with the eating disorder. We've recovered. We work in the field. It's like we're going to be the best at raising our kids intuitively. And then suddenly you've done all the work, you know, battling diet culture as an individual. And then you're faced with a new level of, or a layer of diet culture, which is parenting diet culture. And that sounds really scary. So I'm. <laughs> Like, I cannot believe it, but I could see how it would come up because you want your kid to be safe, protected. And maybe it looks like that when you hear all these parents like telling you what you should and shouldn't be doing. So how did it go? Like, did you just sat there and watch your kid have a popsicle and then processed the experience pretty much?
1: (laughs) I did. I really did. I Yes, let him have a popsicle. And I was like, Ooh, I really am anxious. Like it was a wake up moment for me to be like, this is the work that I've done. So, you know, I think I was able to hear it because of the work that I had done and because of the work I was doing with my clients. So I was able to see it and I literally came home and I started reading my Ellen Satter books again. I was like, I really need to look at this now through a different lens. And that's what I tell parents all the time. I say, I'm a dietitian and I'm also a mom of three kids And so before I was a mom, I used to teach the classes. I used to teach the information. But now I truly get, one, what it feels like to be a parent and be feeding your child. And two, the really practical aspects of what it comes down to when your kid doesn't eat something, when you have soccer or baseball practice until 7 p.m., when you have right like all of these things that you're trying to juggle. And individuals that are not parents yet can't do this work. I'm not at all suggesting that, just like somebody who hasn't had an eating disorder can still be an amazing eating disorder clinician. I'm not at all suggesting that. I think we all bring different things to the table in different ways, but through doing this, I can see it through a different lens now too, as being a parent.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I can see that, which is really interesting. So I'm thinking about diet culture through the lens of parenting. What are some of those like diet culture myths related to food that you're constantly challenging in your practice. I assume people come to you hearing so many things. And what do you have to say about those things (laughs) when they come to you?
1: I think it's probably a lot of the same things, you know, that we face as adults, too. Mm -hmm. Like there's so much around. Well, I guess there's two big categories. And Again, there's like a million and twenty two other things that we could look at. But when it comes to foods themselves, I would say there's two big categories that we need to eat more vegetables and we need to eat less sugar. <laughs> like those are they just feel like these kind of consistent, ongoing topics that most parents are concerned about. And I say vegetables because that tends to be a food group that's harder for kids. It takes more time and exposure to. plus we put so much pressure around it that you know, that there's all of those pieces. But it's eating a variety in general for a lot of parents too. So that we need to eat more variety, we need to eat more vegetables and that we need to eat less sugar. So there's that. And then I also think that through the diet culture lens, there's a lot around, we need to control what we eat. Like there are portion sizes. There are certain amounts that are okay. There are certain amounts that aren't okay. So my kids shouldn't have another piece of bread if they didn't have their vegetables or the two plates of food is just flat out too much. (laughs) Like, you know, like just these... Ideas, which I'll say are actually arbitrary, but these arbitrary ideas around, you know, portions and amounts and amounts of certain foods and and all of that. So I think that's another big category too is just what portions should look like and what they actually should and, you know, shouldn't be eating.
0: Did you confront any of that when your kids were growing up? Like, was there a period where they weren't eating any vegetables and, like, how did you handle that?
1: (laughs) For sure. And, It's interesting because I think maybe because I do this work so much and really absorb it, that it's kind of funny. I, I notice this every so often. Still to this day, I am like, I don't really know what my kids eat. Like I'm so not attuned to exactly what they're eating because I just don't feel like that's my job to micromanage it. So yes, I think there absolutely are times. There are times when I do notice something come up for me and I'm like, oh, wow, they just... Eight, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that's like eight pieces of pizza or something. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like that was, or I'll have my mom tell me that. She'll be like, oh, he was home today. He had eight pieces of pizza. And I'm like, oh, interesting. Cause I wouldn't have counted them. <laughs> right. I might notice that he goes back and gets more and more, but I wouldn't have counted them. But then she tells me, and I'm like, oh, that's a lot. But my point is, I, I do kind of notice that a little bit, right? Like I know my kid who loves fruits and vegetables way more than another kid. Like there's differences in their preferences. That's just who they are. And they have individual differences on foods they enjoy more than others on amounts they need. So I have some broad ideas about that. I don't manage or look at, did they eat a fruit today? Did they eat a vegetable? I just know I'm consistently doing my job of providing a variety of foods and I mm-hmm. trust them to eat what they need. So I really don't pay that much attention. It's kind of funny to say, but like that's the truth. I mean, of course, there are certain meals that I notice something more than others, or if they tried a new food or they make mention of something or whatever it might be. Like literally last night at dinner, and then we were walking down to school today, and my daughter was like, Mom, it's so funny. I love that Miss Cherie, who was our preschool teacher, said, your taste buds are tricky because I tried lettuce last night and I like it again. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Right. So like she notices things. So she told me she tried lettuce. I noticed last night she tried it. She made a point of it. Like, I think I tried this again and oh, I like it plain. So of course, I notice things like that, but I really don't manage or tally or keep track of what they're eating at all.
0: Well, I think that's amazing. And it's very refreshing to hear, honestly. I think that there is this narrative out there that people are really on top of their kids and what they're having. So it's nice that you're a little detached and you're modeling that trust, right? Of you know, the body is going to take in what it needs, crave what it needs and seek balance on its own. And so I really appreciate that you have that quality. I didn't expect that to be your answer. So that's pretty nice. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think there are certain instances, right? Like I've had very specific instances. I remember we went apple picking for one of my kids for preschool and he ate so many apples that day off the tree because they were like, yeah, you can sample the apples, whatever, right? So he's like eating them and I'm not joking. they are many apples, but devouring Mm -hmm. apples and probably (laughs) had five apples or something. I don't really know. We're talking about what a four-year-old at this point, like apples, 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 And then we took home apples because we picked them too. And he didn't touch the rest of the apples that we had bought, right? Or that we had, yeah, picked and brought home. And so I have these instances where I notice that they maybe do eat more of one food and then they're not interested in it. And, you know, I remember when one of my kids, my oldest, I remember specifically, might've been like around seven, we did this birthday thing and he had multiple bowls of ice cream for his dessert that he had picked. And he didn't touch his dinner that night. And he just had ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. And I remember thinking, I hope he's going to feel okay. Like I did remember thinking that, like, I don't know if that's going to feel great on an empty stomach because he hasn't had anything else, but we'll see. Night went fine. He actually felt perfectly fine. And then the next day was his real birthday. That was his party. The next day was his real birthday. So we had ice cream again and we like served it and it melted. He got distracted and did something else and didn't touch it. And this is not to say that it, works out always in these like, oh, I eat more of something, then I need to eat less of it. I'm not at all suggesting that. But I've had enough moments that I noticed where I'm like, I can totally trust them. I don't need to to worry about this. Like sometimes they will eat more of something. Other times they'll eat less. Like I just trust in the natural balance of knowing my kids do eat something from every food group. Like is it every day? No. Is it you know, a certain perfect portion. No, but I do know that they'll at least eat something from every food group. And so I don't worry about it.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. Cause that's kind of how I approach food. I'm like, maybe I'll have something from every food group today. Maybe I won't. But when I do want vegetables, I'll have, you know, it's like, you trust that that's going to come up. So I love that you can see nature kind of work at play with your role as a parent and observing your kids and their relationship with food. So that's really fascinating to me. One thing that comes up for me, though, when I think about like intuitive eating and raising children, I was an extremely picky eater as a kid. Like, I did not like fruit that much. I did not like certain vegetables. Textures were weird for me. Like, And I'm always curious, first of all, is there an indicator there of like maybe a potential eating disorder down the road? Like if if you're really picky, have you seen a correlation with that? I guess I'll start there.
1: So, you know, now we have the diagnosis for ARFID, which... Is like basically extreme picky eating. And so I think in that regard, yes, there is potential for a child to go more into a very selective space with foods and continue to limit and maybe not get all the nutrients that they need or have, you know, extreme anxiety around trying new foods and all of that, or, you know, and have trouble socializing because of events that involve food. And there could be so many layers to that. What I'll say from the other perspective, though, of potentially more restrictive eating disorders or whatever it might be, and I don't know if this is research-backed, so I'm just going to say what I see from my clients and in my practice is that when a parent is stressed that their child is too selective, they often use tactics that have the potential to interfere with the child having a healthy relationship with food interesting okay so i think that's potentially and i don't know again if that would be the root cause and oftentimes there's nature and nurture and so maybe they do have a more selective relationship with food and maybe that does lead you know down the path but a lot of times as parents we feel really uncomfortable if our child doesn't like vegetables or doesn't want to eat them at a meal or whatever we think you're supposed to eat your vegetables. Like that's how so many people were just raised. And so if if you feel uncomfortable, my kid never wants to eat their vegetables or they should eat their vegetables if they want to have dessert, then you might engage in practices like, you know, finish your plate if you want to have dessert. You at least need to try a bite if you want, right? And so then we're putting foods on a different, playing field. And that child might start to absorb some of that. Oh, there's good foods. There's bad foods. There's foods I have to earn. There's foods maybe if I eat too much, I should compensate for them. Like we're starting to set that tone, if that makes and
0: sense. That's really interesting. I haven't looked at it through that lens, but I'm looking back and I'm like the first moment I probably felt this like a therapy session. Now. <laughs> <laughs> the first moment I really probably felt shame around food wasn't like, diet culture stuff, it was, like, that I was a picky eater, right? And, like, Mm -hmm. it was embarrassing for me to not, like, to eat vegetables or have to turn down, like, fruit after lunch or something at a friend's house because I didn't like it, you know? And I think you're right. There were probably some thoughts and, like, values coming up or, you know, hierarchies of foods being created in my mind. So that's really interesting. What are some of the things that parents would do that might create like that food anxiety in a kid.
1: Oftentimes it's kind of like what we just described, right? That you need to finish your plate. You need to at least try a bite. Even a lot of parents come across the no thank you bite, which is like, well, you need to at least try it, but you don't have to eat it. Or if you try it, you can, you know, spit it out. And I'm not against trying it and spitting it out. I don't like the pressure around it though, especially with more selective eating. There's often stages that kids need to go through to get more comfortable with the food and just being able to like be at the same table with the food could be a step in that direction. Touching it could be a step in that direction, right? Like smelling it could be a step in that direction. And so if we're going from a child having to sit at a table and maybe they're totally not comfortable with that food. And now they have to just try it in order to get their dessert, in order to be dismissed from the table, whatever it is. We're missing all of these steps where they really need to grow to be more comfortable with it and eventually try it and learn to like it. And just what we know is that coercing, pressuring, forcing with food does not help our kids become less selective, it actually creates more avoidant behaviors with food because Mm -hmm. they don't want to be (laughs) pressured and forced. So they're like, you're going to tell me I need to do that. I'm going to push back even harder, right? They become more reactive against it. And it becomes about you as the parent or the authority figure instead of about the food. So now they're reactive to this external thing instead of learning maybe to get comfortable with it, instead of thinking to themselves, oh, mom likes that. Maybe one day I'll learn to like that too. Now they're just like, you're telling me I need to do it. I don't want to do it, right? And that's like our natural reaction as humans and especially as kids. So I think a lot of the like pressure, force, coercion around food, the bribery to eat this and then you can have dinner, things that feel kind of like punishment, like, well... If you don't eat it, then that's just, you know, we'll put it out cold again for you when you're hungry later. Like those sorts of things can really create that dynamic around it.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I remember I was definitely in the clean plate club, you know, scenario as a kid growing up. Like that was always said at family gatherings and things like that. And that makes you kind of disown your connection to your body almost immediately because you're like, well, I must finish this plate so I can have dessert, which is what I'm in this for anyway. No, that's not what I was in for. So yeah, very interesting. Well, thank you. Because I feel like I'm learning a lot about my child.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think it's so true though, like what you were just saying, right, about the clean plate and stuff. And even if parents maybe, and we see this not just with parents, we see this at school and stuff too, even if you're not necessarily forcing your child a lot of times and not for everybody, but a lot of times there's still this idea that you're a good eater, that you're doing a good job if you eat your food, right? So maybe you're not forcing them to, but they're like, oh, I finished my plate. good job, right? Or yeah. I've heard teachers at schools or support staff or whoever it might be. And this is, again, not a blame on anybody. I've just heard these stories. So I'm sharing where it's come from, is that maybe a teacher says something like, oh, a clean plate is a happy plate, or like little sayings like that to try to encourage the kids to eat. And so even things that maybe don't feel negative, like I'm forcing it, this encouragement still is suggesting that you're good, you're a good eater, you're a good human, whatever it might be, because you eat. And again, just like what you said, all of those things distract us from being able to listen to our own internal cues and start basing our worth or value on what we're doing with food and on these external ideas about what it means to be a good eater or what food is supposed to look like.
0: Yes. Yes. I could see how even that positive reinforcement, like say it's a positive comment from a teacher that makes you feel like a better kid, right? It's that young, early age linking that food can be a source of self-worth and self-value and like maybe that felt good. And then one day when you're a teenager, you realize you're going to get praised for dieting. And that's another like thing that's reinforcing the connection between self-worth and food. So yeah, there's so much to discover when it comes to raising your kids, which is interesting because you did say it's really a preventative health goal in a way or prevention-based path to take when you're diving into family nutrition?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely how I see it. You know, that we have our kids in a culture, again, that is going to suggest that they should eat a certain way, that they need to control what they eat, that they need to control their bodies. There are good things to do and bad things to do. And so how can we try to at least offer and plant the seeds that there's another way with food and that it doesn't have to be good versus bad when it comes to food or right and wrong or a way food should look. And so I think it's us just planting those seeds and having a solid safe space where they continue to know. And in this way, at least they know there might be another way. Like even though they're still absorbing that stuff, it's not just like, well, that's how it has to be. These are automatically good foods and bad foods. At least we can challenge that idea with them. We can have conversations. When we have more awareness and our kid says, because this happens again and again, I see this in my private Facebook group. I see this with clients. They will get some assignment at school and they'll come home and say, well, I shouldn't eat that because it's not healthy or whatever it might be. And when we have the awareness as the adult we can actually start challenging that idea and say, so what do you think healthy mean? Mm. So what does it mean to have a healthy food? We can just help them explore that idea. We could share a different perspective. Well, actually, healthy means that we eat a variety of different foods. It's not that any one food is good or bad. Like we can just start to explore this with them instead of confirming what they're learning out there,
0: mm. right? That's- a really good point too. It's just offering a new perspective. And I feel like that is a little bit of a relieving perspective as like, say someone listening to this, who's part of, you know, they're in eating disorder recovery. They actually are learning like pretty radical concepts like anti-diet, health at every size. So everyone listening, just kind of try to take in some peace if you have children knowing you can lightly challenge what they're learning at school and offer like your, this perspective that you might be learning yourself to your kids, which is really good. I'm glad you pointed that out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I laugh these say lightly challenged because there are times mm-hmm. when we lightly challenge it. And there are times when I've flown off like the deep end and been like, <laughs> you are not reading this thing on sugar is toxic or whatever. And I'm like, no way. Yeah. <laughs> shaking As I try to write the email, I'm like, Oh, Nicole, take a breath. We're okay. <laughs> We're
0: okay. Yes. Okay. Maybe not so lightly, but yeah, I love that example too. But one thing I did want to bring up to you because it's kind of timely and recent is this idea, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics just published like recommendations, including weight loss surgery as an option for kids. And of course this brought a lot of uproar in our communities. Nobody wants to see bariatric surgery recommended in children. So I just want to hear your perspective and thoughts on weight loss for kids and what can a parent do if their child goes to the doctor and the doctor starts talking to them about weight loss? Yes. So,
1: so many things, right? It's so much. I know. So these guidelines you know, like you said, have so much, so many of us in an uproar because it's what we work so hard to combat on the day-to-day. And now it's just like in writing and like, this is the policy, this is what we're doing. And, you know, it just feels horrible. And it feels like another step in the wrong direction to be making these really strong recommendations. And so, you know, I actually recently did an Instagram live with Una Hansen, who I adore. And she is, I think she considers herself like a parent coach and she really specializes in eating disorders as well after having a child who went through an eating disorder. And and so that's really her area of expertise. So I highly recommend looking at her for resources as well. But we recently did an Instagram live and... So we talked through some of the different stages. I want to mention her because this was kind of a collaborative conversation that we had together. And one of the things that she said that I thought was really important is like a first level thing, right? Because we're thinking about how can we prevent it from happening in the doctor's office in the first place? How can we address it in the moment if it does happen? And then how do we potentially chat with our child afterwards and try to do some damage control if need be. So there's like these layers and stages of it. So I feel like it's important to talk about first, is there an option for prevention or can we try to do that so that we never even have to have that conversation to begin with? So one of the things that she recommended that Una recommended that I hadn't even really thought of was you might even just call your doctor's office and say, Hey, we saw these new guidelines come out we're curious what your stance is on them. And if you plan to have conversations in the room about weight loss or, you know, like just ask what their thoughts even are so that you know, they might say, absolutely not. We think that's outrageous. Nothing's changing here. We always take a stance towards this or whatever it might be. So maybe just find out some information first on a very basic level. Next step is if you do have some concerns, maybe you've been to the pediatrician before these guidelines even came out because the truth is pediatricians have been recommending dietary changes in weight loss for umpteen years before these guidelines even came out. So maybe your pediatrician at some point has recommended that your child restrict their intake in some way or that they should be losing some weight or whatever it might be. So maybe you've already had to face that conversation. You're concerned about it year after year when you go for well visits or whatever. So you also might call ahead of time and say, can you please put a note in my chart that we don't want to discuss weight or body size in the office? If there are any concerns, you can always contact me after. Whatever that might be. You could hand a note right when you walk in to the front desk staff and say, hey, please put this in my chart. Or maybe you hand it to the doctor right when they walk in the room as they're going to look at the chart, right? That's essentially just saying, hey, please don't discuss weight or body size. If you have any concerns, you can contact me after right? So there's these levels of prevention that hopefully, again, we're protecting our child and we can't entirely protect them from diet culture. And that's why I say we want to help them think about it critically and bring these concepts up. But to have a doctor or any authority figure, or anybody at all really speak to directly create body shame in that moment, I would say that's worth trying to prevent as much as we can, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Like yeah, there's so many times that I've heard the one doctor's visit where my, you know, pediatrician said this, you know, sent me into a spiral or I in the health class assignment that we had to do, or I was so embarrassed to do X, Y, and Z. And that's when my eating disorder really took off. So I would say if we can prevent that, let's try. Then, you know, in the actual doctor's visit, again, I have to bring Una up because I loved this line that she shared because I've actually had this, Happen with one of my kids where the doctor was like, oh, oh, his weight really jumped up. Look at it like kind of like stumbling. And then like, so you might want to make some changes. And I was like, we won't be making any changes. Thank you. And then like redirected the conversation. And so you certainly could do something along those lines. And I love what Una said, because I'm a really big fan of one-liners for like setting boundaries, something that I don't have to like read a paragraph off of or remember all these things. And one thing that she said was, you know, you might just say like, ooh, I'm going to have to stop you right there. And that's it, right? Just like I'm going to end this conversation right then and there. We're not going to go down the rabbit hole of talking about my child's body and making these recommendations or talking about how they need to restrict food. I'm just going to stop you right there. Mm -hmm. And it might be a little bit uncomfortable. It might be a little bit awkward and that's okay. It's also going to feel really crappy to sit there and listen to your child be body shamed and told that they need to lose weight. So I get that that feels a little uncomfortable likely, but but you can do it, right? And you don't have to, right? If you don't feel like you have the spoons to advocate for that, then we might be looking at, okay, so how are you going to have this conversation with your child after to really talk to them about different ideas about food and bodies and what our beliefs are and how they felt about that conversation? So you might have to go down that path as well. So... I don't know. Did that answer your question? That was
0: really helpful. You really laid out many points of intervention and like points where we can come in and like hopefully prevent body shaming from happening at the doctor's office. And yeah, even processing it after could be helpful too. But of course, I hope it doesn't get to that point. And I appreciate you laying it all out there for us. Um, We're actually running really low on time already because this went by so fast. So I guess my final question for you, Nicole, is just what are your top high level suggestions almost for someone who wants to make sure their kid is set up for an intuitive, happy relationship with food? What advice do you have to leave everyone today?
1: I think it's really important to like I mentioned, Ellen Satter and the Division of Responsibility, it's really important to know your role in the feeding relationship and that your job is to support your child to be able to eat a variety of foods, to self-regulate, to attune to their body cues, to have this balanced relationship with food. Like your job is to support them in that, but it's not to get them to actually eat in any specific way or any specific food at any certain time. And so it's really important that we define those roles and we know, yes, I need to play a supportive role. And that's why I tell parents all the time, especially if they're on their own journey for intuitive eating, they might think, well, I should just let my kid eat whatever they want and whenever they want. We don't have time to go into all of this, but it's actually really important because of our children still, that we provide support for them. So we wanna play a supporting role, but then give them the space to really tune into their body cues and eat the amount and the foods that they want and eat from what we provide. So I think that's the piece. There's also a huge piece around language that I talk about all the time. How are we talking about food and bodies in the home? How are we setting these boundaries to not make our kids feel ashamed for what they want to eat or how much they're eating, how we talk about foods in general? So there's a language piece that we really want to create this neutral and trusting environment about food or around food. And lastly, again, going back to Doing our own work and being willing to take a look at ourselves and maybe what anxieties. I mean, that could just be a place to start. What does my child do with food or what about their body makes me anxious? And that's something that I really need to start to look at. Why is this, you know, a hot button for me? What's coming up for me in this? And how can I do the work around that? Because it's not my job to control and change my child, it's my job to do my own work and sit in that discomfort.
0: I love that final question. Just, I think the stories that you shared today were really eye-opening for me because I'm like, wow, the child could bring up so much stuff that you didn't realize you still might have deep in the back of your mind, right? So asking your question, what is coming up for me? Like, what about my child's relationship with food is giving me anxiety, right? Or what are they doing with food and working on that and reflecting on that more so Really helpful to point that out. So, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a really lovely conversation.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to get to chat with you.
0: You're very welcome. And for those listening who want to get in touch with you, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, a great place to find me is on Instagram. I'm there often at just Nicole Cruz RD. That's a great place. I also have resources on my website, which is NicoleCruzRD.com where you can find a ton of free parenting resources, more information about courses and my group program and all of that. And I'm very open. So go on Instagram, send me a DM, let me know that you heard me here and I'm more than happy to chat with you there too.
0: Amazing. I love how open you are. That sounds great. Everyone go message Nicole with your questions. I'm sure (laughs) she will be a great resource for you. Thank you again, Nicole. It was such a pleasure. Thank you.
1: It was great to be with you.